Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're going to be talking about a Japanese cinema classic, Rashomon, directed by Akira Kurosawa, and I'm joined by special guest, Dr. Alexander Jacobi. Hello, Alex. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us down the line, as they say. Nice to see another face during lockdown. It is indeed. Your work, uh, I guess, if I was to describe you, would be as an academic in film? Yeah, I've been lecturing on Japanese film and then on the arts and culture of Japan more generally at Oxford Brooks uh, University for the past, well, uh, gosh, more than 10 years now. So I teach courses on Japanese live-action cinema, but also on uh, manga, anime, and the the older art forms. And I'm currently working on a book about the great contemporary uh, Japanese filmmaker Hirokazu Koreeda, which should be published by Bloomsbury in collaboration with the British Film Institute, uh, hopefully next year. But I've also, um, for a long time, worked with the British Film Institute, uh, collaborating on programs of Japanese cinema, and I've also worked on Japanese film retrospectives at the Cinema di Provato Film Festival in Bologna, uh, at the Silent Film Festival in Pordenone, also in Italy, and at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a broad CV, uh, and it sounds really exciting as well. It's all been, yeah, it's all been exciting so far, and uh, long may it continue. You've dedicated a significant portion of your life. You put so much work into uh, talking about and uh, you know being involved in in Japanese cinema. When when did the Japanese cinema bug bite you? When did you decide this is the avenue you'd like to spend more time in? Well, it was when I was nineteen, and um, I was an undergraduate, and the British Film Institute did more or less complete retrospective of the surviving films of Kenji Mizuguchi, who is still my my favourite Japanese director, and I remember looking at the program and it said um, the comparisons are as inevitable as they're unfashionable. Mizuguchi is a cinema Shakespeare, it's Bach and Beethoven, it's Rembrandt and Picasso. And I thought, my, I need to see these movies. So I spent a, a month commuting down to London most evenings and I uh, followed the entire retrospective and I was bowled over by uh, by the films. And then later that year, uh, the BFI followed up the smaller but still quite substantial Ozu retrospective. And so I saw one after the other uh, these two directors who have almost opposite styles. And so at that point, I thought, OK, you just have to see Japanese films. This year, 2020 is a big year for Japan, or it should have been uh, before current events happened. The Olympics and a lot of cultural organisations also focusing on Japan. And even though we are not seeing a lot of these films, which are screening in the BFI Japan 2020 season in cinemas, there is a wealth of amazing work available online through the BFI player. How have you been involved in the BFI Japan 2020 season, Alex? I was asked, I, I think about nine months ago, to get involved and to give advice and to help curate uh, sections of this very extensive program, which is you know, hoping to 
really to survey the full length and breadth of Japanese cinema, including both live action and animated film. And in particular, I worked with James Bell of Sight and Sound on co-curating the 20th century section of what is uh, hopefully going to be the in-venue part of the programme. And so when we're all ready uh, to go back into the cinemas, we, we still aim to show a broad selection of films, some of them famous, some of them unfairly neglected, stretching right through from the 1920s up to the end of the 20th century. And I've also contributed to some of the online writing uh, around the season. There's then going to be an anime-related programme, but there's also, as you say, lots of online material now, which is you know, particularly important because that's the only way we can watch movies at the moment. And so the BFI player has a big package of Japanese cinema, including very substantial Kurosawa retrospective, but also uh, going much beyond that with Ozu and uh, with Naruse, with also some more modern films. So it's, it's, it's already a very diverse program, and um, I hope it will get more diverse, more extensive, as we're able to uh, move back into um, physical cinemas. The idea for the show is there's so many films to choose from, but you know we have the caveat of it has to be something under mm-hmm. 90 minutes. And when looking through uh, some of the more sort of household names in Japanese cinema, I'm always surprised, pleasantly surprised to see that our film today, Rashomon, is 89 minutes. Often when I think of a director like his work, I always think of you know the three hour plus Seven Samurai and, and his later epics. But actually in 1950, he made a very very concise and svelte runtime of Rashomon. So yeah, so should we, should we talk about Rashomon, Alex? Yes, indeed. Let's, uh, let, let's cut to the chase. Winner of the top prize at the 1952 Venice Film Festival and an honorary Academy Award winner the same year, the film concerns a woodcutter, played by Takashi Shimura, who witnesses a horrific series of events, an ambush, the rape of a noblewoman, played by Machiko Kiyo, and the subsequent murder of her samurai husband, played by Mayasuki Mori, by a bandit, played by Toshiro Mifune. Yet, in the recounting of the incidents at the trial, differing versions come from all involved, thus raising questions about the reliability of subjective truth. I, I have to correct the uh, the blurb there. It was the 1951 Venice Film Festival. Ah, well, get on the blower to the BFI. <laughs> a key thing to make clear i guess is you know this is a film which is told through a framing device the conversation at the beginning of the film at the rashomon gate and then we 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 see the film i guess effectively four times over mm-hmm, mm-hmm. different characters perspectives so it isn't uh, it isn't a film with a long plot particularly but a plot which is repeated time and time again well indeed if we're thinking about it within this framework of it being less than uh, 90 minutes that relates to the origin of the film because Kurosawa came from a relatively unusual angle. This is, this is what's called a period, uh, well, it's what's called the Jidageki in Japanese, so it's a period film. It's set, in, it's set in medieval Japan, but it's not really a normal kind of period film because most Japanese Jidageki are based on historical events or on literary classics, and this is based on a short story by a much more modern writer, a kind of slightly avant-garde writer of the early 20th century, who was a man called uh, Ryunosuke Akutagawa. And Originally, Kurosawa wanted to film his, his story in a grove, and that corresponds to the main action of, of the film, the thing you, you see several times over. But it actually proved quite hard to get off the ground because it wasn't a, a normal kind of period film. Two studios turned it down because they were worried that it was going to be uncommercial. 
And even Daiye, which is a, the studio that ultimately made it, was quite skeptical. And in part, that was because they thought the script was too short. And that was why it had this framing story added, which is taken from another Akutagawa story. And the other Akutagawa, Akutagawa story is actually called Rashomon. So that's where the title of the film comes from. And Rashomon is, is the, the name of the gate that we see at the beginning. It was anciently the southern gateway to the old Japanese capital of Heian-kyo, which is the city we now call Kyoto. And Stuart Galbraith actually writes that the lion's share of the film's budget went to went to building that gate. It's quite a dramatic opening. I mean, that part of the film, the set looks pretty epic. A huge gate, lots of debris in the background, very, very dramatic rain and a heavy score. It's sort of, it's quite ominous. Yes, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very brooding, very striking opening scene, isn't it? When you cut to the grove, it's beautiful, beautiful sunlight. And it's such a contrast there, which is, you know, it's, I guess it's just a really good symbolism for the audience to, to, you know, clearly define what is taking place when? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I think is really um, striking about uh, Rashomon is how different one locale is from another. And that's not only different a difference in atmosphere, but it's also a difference in, in camera style. And, and people often remember the kind of dynamic traveling shots through the forest or the, uh, the fact that you see shots taken directly into the sunlight, which was uh, you know, quite a technical feat uh, 70 years ago. But I, I think they also should remember that you have these contrasting scenes, like the courtroom scenes, where we're watching through a static camera, the camera is watching the participants bear witness. And it's really as if we ourselves, the audience, are put in the position of being the judge. Mm. And as, as you say, that, that opening scene you know, beside the dilapidated Rashomon Gate, and thinking you know, that that was the gate to, to Japan's capital and the city that's still... Well, now, but, and certainly when Kurosawa made his film, you know, people thought of Kyoto, people think of Kyoto as the cultural capital of, of Japan. So when you see that in ruins, it's almost as if you're seeing Japanese culture itself in ruins. It says something about, about the horror of medieval civil war, of course, but I think it very directly speaks to the devastation that Japan had experienced in World War II and, and then emerging from that devastation, questioning uh, what path Japan could take in the post-war world. The film has been lovingly restored and it's a very pristine print that we now get to watch at home. But this film was made only five years after the war ended. You know, it's very, very fresh in everybody's minds. Indeed. I mean, Japan is, is, is actually still under American occupation at, at that moment. The, the American troops are stationed in Japan. General MacArthur is governing Japan really until 1952. So, you know, after, after even, the, even the Venice screening. So it's very much the product of, a, of a, defe a, de a defeated people. Kurosawa had rather humanist ideals. So I think, in a sense, he can't have been sad to see the militarism of the wartime period defeated. But at the same time, you know, that's a difficult situation to be in. The uh, sense of Japan's failure, the sense of its need to rebuild in a very comprehensive way is extremely strong at that, that moment. And actually, you know, I think one of the things that made it so exhilarating perhaps for, for for japan to watch its cinema get a get a purchase on international audiences was thinking that this was you know, a route back into international respectability let's say you know it's it's at a time when japan is is associated with some very negative things in the eyes of most of the world it's a way of presenting a kind of positive vision of japanese culture even though of course rashomon's quite a a dark film in many respects What 
what's your relationship with this film, Alex? Is this one that you've watched multiple times over the years? For many people, it's their way into Japanese cinema. And I think in a sense, it probably... It, it, it probably was uh, my way into Japanese cinema because I think it was the first Japanese film I saw. It was certainly the first classic Japanese film I saw. I saw it. I'd possibly seen one or two Takeshi Kitano films. Uh, I saw it on VHS sometime in the 1990s in uh, Newcastle upon Tyne, where I was raised for uh, part of my childhood. You know, I, I came to it really knowing almost nothing about Japanese film. I remember how old it felt when I watched it. And I was watching a lot of old films already. But I think it was that sense of it, it being both a film that was already more than 40 years old and a film from a country, a culture that at that stage, you know, I knew very little about. So it really kind of felt exotic. I mean, I, I, I could tell people off now when they kind of say, oh, Japanese cinema is exotic. But, you know, that was how it, it felt at the time. Um, and it did lead me... Uh, therefore, on a voyage of discovery, you know, it wasn't only Akira Kurosawa who I discovered, but the broader riches of Japanese cinema, Mizuguchi, Ozu, and beyond. Years later, I ended up teaching Rashomon in my course on classical Japanese cinema at Oxford Brooks and, uh, and discuss it every year. And I think they find it quite challenging, uh, but I think they find it rewarding. I, I certainly get some good essays on it. How was this film received on release in, in Japan? Well, I mean, it had a, a slightly complicated experience in that once it was finished, it encountered the displeasure of the head of the studio. Daie had, had somewhat reluctantly agreed to finance it after those other studios turned it down, but Masaichi Nagata, who was the studio boss, hated it. He didn't understand it. He is said to have walked out of the first screening. He seems to have disowned the film. Stuart Galbraith, again, tells us uh, this is really because he didn't know how to market it. But actually, it ended up doing quite well commercially. There was a, 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 a sort of legend when it when it was screened and admired at venice uh, the legend grew up that it had been a flop in japan but in fact it was daie's fourth biggest box office hit of 1950 and it was also critically esteemed so kinema jumpo the uh, magazine which is kind of the sight and sound of japan they have a critics poll every every year which draws up a top 10 and Rashomon came fifth in the in, in the critics poll of that year. You know, so so the, this this is certainly a film which which is is the recipient of commercial success and critical acclaim back in Japan. However, it's kind of accidental that it got to Europe. A very small number of Japanese films have been shown in Europe and in North America uh, in the late 1920s, in the 1930s, including actually one or two at Venice. But they haven't really achieved that much acclaim. They haven't really been commercially successful. There have been very limited screenings, like the Film Society screened uh, Kinugasa's Crossroads, an early Naruse film, Wife Be Like a Rose, played briefly in, in New York to you know, in different reviews. I think Japanese studios and uh, filmmakers still you know, are not confident that they can appeal to international audiences. And Japan's audience for its own cinema in the 1930s you know, is almost entirely domestic. They were exporting to their colonies, but beyond that, you know, they're, they're not really screening anything very much abroad. And when we get to the time around 1950, actually what everyone wants at that time at the international film festivals is neorealism. Rossellini's trilogy, starting with you know, Rome Open City, had sort of kick-started this you know, socially responsible genre, and it, it's a, uh, a genre that really seems like a response to the catastrophe of the war and uh, the difficulties of the post-war situation. You know, Bicycle Thieves was only two years old when uh, Rashomon was, was made. Um, and those were the kind of films which, you know, if not necessarily the most commercially successful films, those were the kind of films that were getting great uh, reviews 
from critics, yeah, there were a lot of people who looked at those films and thought, okay, this is what cinema should be. And so when Japan was invited to send a film to Europe, in the first place, they were asked to submit a film to Cannes. Then they were asked to submit a film to uh, Venice. And actually what they chose was certainly not going to be a period film. They didn't think that Western audiences would, would understand the context. They didn't think that Western viewers would respond to a Jidage. And so the film that kept being recommended was a film called Until the Day We Meet Again by Tadashi Imai. And it's a serious, it's a tragic romance set right at the end of, of the war. And it had won the top spot in that Kinema Junpo uh, critics poll. And the reason that that didn't go forward was because the studio that had produced it, which was Toho, for whom Kurosawa uh, was going to make most of his films, but Toho at that point couldn't afford to subtitle print Imai. So that came to nothing. Uh, and in the end, it was the intervention of a lady called uh, Giuliana Gramigioli, uh, and she uh, ran the Italia film office in Japan, and she had really enjoyed uh, Rashomon, and she pushed for it to go to Venice, and, and, and the rest is history. Oh, wow, what a, that's such a near miss as well. What a, what a great story. We'd have had a very different perspective on Japanese cinema if it had started with the MI, because once Rashomon was distributed abroad, uh, immediately the Japanese studios and the people who were curating retrospectives and, and, and festivals abroad started thinking, well, people want to see period films. So all the late period films of Mizuguchi, Ugetsu, Sancho Dayu, Shinheke Monogatari, they all made their way to the West. And it took a bit longer for the films with contemporary settings to get across. You know, Ozu's uh, Tokyo Story wasn't shown in the West until 1957. So if we'd started with the MI, I think we'd have had much more of a kind of idea that, okay, Japan does neo-realist films of a sort as well. And of course, Japan does have a great tradition of realist cinema. And that, I suppose, would have been what was discovered first. It's really fascinating because this film, as well as winning Top Spot at Venice, it won Kurosawa an honorary Academy Award. Well, I mean, it, it was... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it made it made a splash at the time. It was it, it was quite widely distributed at a time when you know, not many subtitled films were were being uh, widely shown abroad. It got some very good reviews. It also got some perplexed reviews. I mean, if you look in particular at the American press of the time, you know, there are there are quite a number of critics who just don't understand it. They find the acting uh, exaggerated and theatrical. So uh, you know, it wasn't a, a universal success. But then you had uh, critics like Ben Young rather neglected figure nowadays, but actually very much worth going back to. And he wrote that Rashomon was one of the very few intellectually complex achievements in the history of the cinema. I, I mean, I kind of think it's a bit unfair to the rest of cinema, but it makes a strong statement. And I suppose what he's fastening on when he talks about intellectual complexity is this idea that this is a film which poses a philosophical question. And a lot of people say, and I think the blurb you read at the beginning said, uh, this is a film about the subjectivity of truth. I guess we live in these post-truth times right now. So, so, so maybe Rashomon is a, is a film for the, the post-truth era. But actually, I don't think Rashomon is a film about the subject of truth. Because that suggests you know, there's one of events and we happen to see them differently. But not, not really. The, the different versions of the story contradict each other. Rashomon's a, a film about people who tell lies deliberately for their own advantage. Uh, and I suppose that can also be what post-truth uh, turns out to mean as well. Again, though, if you think about 70 years ago, people in Japan and across the world had lived through a time of unprecedented horror, and it was also a time of unprecedented mendacity. People were lying out of guilt, uh, out of fear. 
people were trying to explain away the appalling things that had been done. And that's the relevance of the plot of Rashomon to the experience through which Kurosawa's generation has lived. A murder has been committed. We know that. A rape has probably been committed. But really, it's a film, I think, about the lies people tell to enable them to feel good about having done terrible things. So we, we shouldn't be surprised that the stories contradict each other because uh, certainly all those different stories can't be true, uh, but they do all serve the different characters' egos. And I think that's what Kurosawa wants to expose. He said, I never thought the Rashomon theme was unusual. If you are observant, you can find such things everywhere in the world. And maybe that's why it just resonated with so many people. It's a, it's quite a universal experience in that respect, you know, language barrier aside. I think people can all relate to that. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of unfashionable nowadays to talk about uh, you know, works of art being universal. But, well, I mean, I think the fact that, that people embraced it at the time, the fact that people are still watching it uh, 70 years on, the, the fact that you ask people to name a Japanese live action film, it comes, I think, quite quickly on the list. I mean, I think that does tell us something about its, its lasting and its, its broad human appeal. Hello, I'm Martin Zotzorstwick. And I'm Sam Pei. And together we make a podcast called Song, Song by Song. Song. But we don't do it alone. Almost every week we have a guest. And we've had some wonderful guests, including writers John Ronson, John Hodgman, Simon Stevens. We've had uh, musicians Eliza Rickman, uh, Jenny Conley Drizos from the Decemberists, and Jeremy Wormsley and Elizabeth Sankey from Summer Camp. Uh, we've had podcasters Jenny Owen Youngs, Jeffrey Craner, and Phoebe Judge. All sorts of people join us to talk about the music of Tom Waits. And if that sounds fun, why don't you join us too? You can do that at our website, songbysongpodcast.com, or search for Song by Song wherever you get your podcasts. Where was Akira Kurosawa in terms of his filmmaking career before Rashomon? Because he, he has a body of work in the 40s, doesn't he? He, he does, but it, it's relatively early in its career because if you remember, it stretches right forward to the 90s. He worked into, into old age. So anyway, he's, he, he's a mature person. He, he was 40 years old in the year that Rashomon was released. And he had been in the film industry for quite a long time uh, because he'd worked as an assistant director in the 1930s uh, but he'd only actually been directing for seven years when he made Rashomon. So he started directing in the fraught wartime period. And inevitably, you know, some of the films that he made during the war ended up being propaganda pieces. Really, it's in the occupation, I think, that he hitch, hits his stride. And it's certainly not the case that you know, he was discovered with Rashomon by Japanese audiences, because he was already very highly reputed. Uh, he, he was one of the major younger directors of that time. He'd already had several films in the Kinema Junpo top 10. Drunken Angel, for instance, ranked as the best one of 1948. And that means it actually did better than Rashomon because Rashomon only came fifth. And he was already quite a diverse filmmaker. He'd made martial arts films. He'd made humanist dramas. He'd made thrillers. But I think you could argue it's the international success of this film, which uh, really gave him a platform to make the films for which he's now most famous you know, that humanist classic, Ikiru, about a, a dying man trying to find the meaning of life, the period film Seven Samurai, and you know, because he knew by then he had a Western audience as well, it was easy for him to make adaptations of Western authors, Dostoevsky, in The Idiot, Shakespeare in Throne of Blood. So for 15 years after Rashomon, really, he was, he was riding high. He could pretty much make whatever he wanted. Seven Samurai, I believe, was the most expensive film made to that date in Japan. But Toho let him get away with spending all that money because they expected the film to win profits and prestige for them. And it's sad that after 1965, when Kurosawa was still only in his mid-50s, the new commercial realities of Japanese cinema 
kind of caught up with him. It became much, much harder for him to get projects uh, off the ground. And if you look at his um, later career, we have this kind of sequence of films every five years. I think there was a lot of frustration at that time as he found suddenly he couldn't bring his projects to fruition. And it's one of the sad and well-known stories about him that he did actually attempt suicide uh, in 1971 as it looked like his career was running into the ground. I think of him as such a celebrated filmmaker. I didn't, I didn't realise he had that, you know, sort of slowing down uh, of his career, you know, so soon after something like Rashomon. Things changed very dramatically because Japan was changing. In the 1950s, Japanese cinema has a reliable audience. People will go to the cinema kind of once a week. At the end of the decade, the average Japanese person is going to the cinema uh, 10 times a year. By the 1970s, that's down to a single annual visit. And people who like movies are more and more interested in, in, in watching foreign films, which are trendy, rather than Japanese films, which by that point have become a bit uncool, Vasai, uh, as the Japanese would say. You know, Kurosawa really was the kind of casualty of that. And if you look at his later films, a lot of them have foreign funding. Dozu Sala is a film in the Russian language. Uh, it's produced by Mosfilm. And really, it was some of his American fans, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, um, who'd been uh, hugely influenced by The Hidden Fortress when he came to make Star Wars, uh, who realised that Kurosawa was in this pickle and encouraged American interests to finance the late uh, period films. It's nice when you hear film fans uh, supporting their filmmakers. It's a really nice turn of events. Are there themes in, in Rashomon which Kurosawa comes back to uh, later in his career? Are there you know, sort of Kurosawa tropes for the, those with a keen eye? Well, I mean, I think for me... The fundamental, yeah, I, I don't like saying a film has a message. Messages, as Samuel Goldwyn said, should be sent by Western Union. But, you know, if you're looking for a message in Rashomon, you know, re really, it's, it's reminding us that one person can make a difference, uh, either for good or ill. And certainly, I think that that is the theme which comes back in a lot of Kurosawa's later work. It's the theme in Ikiru. You know, the man in Ikiru knows he's dying. He thinks about the different possibilities of how he can give meaning to his life. He thinks about... You know, mere hedonism, you know, going out and getting drunk on the town. But actually, he moves towards investing what's left of his life to do some good for the people who will uh, remain after him. And I think that, that that's a message which can be connected very uh, directly to what happens at the end of Rashomon. Has Kurosawa spoken about this film sort of later in his life? Do you know what he felt of, of this film? He was proud of the film. And actually, I, I think he never quite forgave Nagata for having been so dismissive. Yeah, he, I think, was very proud of his use of sound. He was actually a great fan of silent cinema. And, you know, he, he, I think he's also interested in what you can do with sound apart from just have people talking. You know, that rather extraordinary score that sounds very like, like Bolero. And he also recounted that, uh, you know, he got, he got into a very close-knit uh, situation with the team because, as you said, you know, it's a small cast of actors. It's a relatively small crew. And they lived together while the film was being made. I mean, it didn't actually take very long to make. It was, it was, it was, it was shot in a, in a couple of weeks. But he said, uh, I thought I was directing Rashomon every minute of the day and night. We could talk everything over uh, and get very close. Stories like that are often associated with quite, you, know, you hear sort of modern indie film directors talking about that. And it's so nice to hear this 
very significant film from 1950. You know, there's still that, that indie filmmaking spirit there. Well, I, mean, I think that was one of the great advantages, in a, in a sense, of the, of the Japanese studio system. You know, a lot of films were being made. They were being made uh, quick, quickly and uh, they were being made cheaply, uh, relatively cheaply. Directors were in a position where they, they actually could experiment and they could produce things within the commercial system that seem often like art house movies to us here in the West. In a sense, I think the, the sadness of Japanese film history from the 1960s onwards is that those opportunities began to diminish as the old studio system fa faded away. And that was obviously a direct um, problem for Kurosawa. It was a problem for a lot of his, his contemporaries. Where, where do you think uh, listeners should go for further viewing uh, following Rashomon? They might want to start with other films by Kurosawa. I mean, we've been talking about Rashomon as you know, very, very famous work, but actually, I, I really love Kurosawa's modern thrillers. I think I prefer them to the, uh, the Jidaigeki. So I would say, look at Drunken Angel, look at Stray Dog, look at uh, High and Low. Then when you move beyond Kurosawa, go to Mizuguchi's Ugetsu. Well, it's a logical next step because it gathers back two of the stars. So Masayuki Mori and Achiko Kyo uh, both appear. And as David Thompson once said, in a way, it's got the same theme because, you know, although it's not so much of a kind of thesis film, it's, it's another film about the, the fact that people see the same events very differently or, you know, want to present uh, events very differently. <laughs> We're pulling this list together, all of these great under 90 minute films to present to an audience. If you were in charge of a, a screening of Rashomon with a blank check for where you'd screen it, who you'd screen it with, what you'd like to serve before and after, what would you like to do with this film? <laughs> um, well, I think what I wish I could say is that I wish I could have invited Machiko Kyo to join us for the screening, which we could have done until just last year when she died at the ripe old age of, of 95. So uh, not being able to host her, I think I will have to settle for the last really admirable surviving star of 1950s Japanese cinema, which is Kyoko Kagawa. She's a relatively uh, youthful 88, and she appears in Tokyo Story. She appears in Sancho Daiyu, so she has, you know, roles in two of the great iconic masterpieces of, of Japanese cinema, the great films of, Mizu of Ozu and Mizuguchi. But she was also you know, a, a favorite of Kurosawa, and so she could be there at the screening to reminisce about working with him on The Bad Sleep Well, uh, on High and Low, uh, on uh, Redbeard. So I think that would be my main use of the budget, would be, well, once the epidemic is over, getting her over from Japan to join us for this, this screening. What, what are we, what are we going to nibble on? Well, what, the thing I think would uh, go best are, are, are senbei, the Japanese rice crackers, because they have quite a, you know, a salty, assertive uh, flavor, a bit like the, the tone of the film. But the trouble is they crunch. So mm. I think we're going to have to stick with sushi because you, you can eat it quietly. There's a lot of talk at the moment of how maybe drive-ins are, uh, you know, probably a bit of a, a stopgap, a way for people to enjoy that communal big screen experience without being inside together. And I sort of think you could actually, over a replica of the Rashomon gate, maybe put a big screen. <laughs> that could be quite an experience. And it doesn't matter if it rains because you'll be in a car. Well, yeah, no, that's that, that's that's very true. And yeah, I mean, an, an outdoor screening in, in Kyoto, uh, you know, one of the uh, the great temples. I mean, we don't, we don't have the Rashomon Gate anymore. It, it vanished in the uh, tumult of history many, many centuries ago. But we, we, there's still a lot of heritage in, in, in Kyoto, so, so that would be one option. 
Well, this is going to be a fun screening. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that Q&A sounds like it'd be fascinating. So Alex, in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, this is now the third Japanese title uh, of about 40 films. It joins Nobuhiro Obayashi's House mm-hmm. and Studio Ghibli's My Neighbor Totoro by uh, yeah. Hayao Miyazaki. But that's still only three Japanese films. Mm-hmm. Are there any under 90 minute Japanese films that you'd also like to recommend? Once we get back in venue at BFI South Bank, uh, some of the films that we have on the planned list include Fallen Blossoms, a film with the all-female on-screen cast. That's only about an hour and a quarter. Yasujiro Shimazu's film, Our Neighbor Miss Yai. And anyone who loves Ozu should also really, really like uh, Shimazu, who made the same kind of quiet, delicate, funny and sad uh, stories of everyday life in Japan. And then there's The Life of Matsu the Untamed by Hiroshi Inagaki, which is a really admirable piece of, uh, well, I, I think it's a reasonable say, a piece of humanist filmmaking that managed to uh, emerge somehow from the darkest days of, uh, of the Second World War. So listeners, if you want to find out more about the BFI Japan 2020 season, just go to the BFI website. There's so much content on there in terms of essays to read, items in the BFI shop. There's a really wonderful book to accompany the season and you know the, the, the program both on, on the BFI player and in the venue when it reopens. And there's also a touring program for those who don't live in London, which will be hopefully in lots of cinemas all across the UK. So Alex, if people want to find out more about your work, where should they go? As I say, uh, I published my handbook of Japanese film directors uh, many years ago. You mentioned the uh, Japanese cinema book, which is uh, appearing to coincide uh, with the British Film Institute's celebration of Japanese cinema, and that's jointly edited by my former PhD supervisor, Alistair Phillips uh, of Warwick, and Hideaki Fujiki of uh, Nagoya. I've written a piece on authorship in Japanese cinema for that book. And so if you're happy to read me in a kind of more academic context, then you can look there. And then, as I say, my book on Koreeda should be published by the BFI in Bloomsbury um, next year. I'm currently uh, on sabbatical trying to finish it. Thank you, Alex. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. If you're the sort of person who likes to rate things, that's great. You can rate our podcast. Uh, Please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would be very nice indeed. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. Sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. Our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.